Okay, let's continue on the second part with the reticular activating system. The reticular activating system is a group of neurons that are located all the way, all the way along the brainstem, meaning midbrain, pons, and medulla. And these neurons have connections, have connections with the cerebral cortex, thalamus, hypothalamus, and they have to do with the cycles of sleep and wakefulness. When we fall asleep, that means that we are supposed to block all the sensory input. And um, it's a state at which we are receiving, I mean, still the input is being received, but is in a way tuned out, tuned off. The input is not obtained by the cerebral cortex. But when we are awake, it's like switch on, and all the sensations are getting perceived in the cerebral cortex, and that's what we call when we're awake. Now, this activation and inhibition depends on the reticular activating system, all these groups of neurons along the brain stem. And in the pictures, we presented that all these dark areas, the dark uh, shaded area here, that involves the thalamus, hypothalamus, and all along the brain stem, midbrain pons, and medulla. What happens exactly of this reticular activating system with this reticular activating system? Um, in the hypothalamus, hypothalamus, there is this nucleus or group of neurons called the ventrolateral free optic. And what they do is to release this neurotransmitter called GABA. This GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So this GABA is going to uh, connect to other neurons in the reticular activating system. And this will inhibit all these neurons and it block and it block all the sensory stimulus, allowing the person to fall asleep. And that's how we progressively fall asleep. And this gets much stronger, increases, when we get into deep sleep. Now, uh, this reticular activating system is very important because uh, thanks to this is that we can get into the sleep, and we've been talking about this, how the sleep is good for consolidation of memory for recovery of the neurons and if this doesn't happen then we'll be actually in trouble now there may be problems here in the reticular activating system sometimes because of damage of some parts like in some types of stroke and this is the reason why people get into coma when uh, there is a uh, damage of some parts of the brain stem or strokes in the brain stem or in the thalamus fibers and neurons of the reticular activating system are affected and people get into a deep coma or which is uh, other circumstances uh, which are rare but is theoretically possible is that these GABA connections are not well established and the person is not able to fall asleep uh, experiments are being made on, on rats about this and destroying some parts of the reticular activating system and these rats never went to sleep. They stayed awake for, you know, for a lifetime. Um, and that's uh, how we 
uh, describe and understand the function of the reticular activating system. Now, there are different types of drugs, medications that help to promote sleep that um, act on the reticular activating system. One of the drugs is called neurontin or gabapentin. You can recognize by the name, gabapentin. So it's, a, uh, it's derived from the GABA neurotransmitter. So what it does is uh, uh, stimulates or enhances the action of GABA in some parts of the reticular activating system and actually promotes uh, a good sleep, a deep sleep, which in some cases is necessary. Uh, neurontin. Neurontin. neurontin, I think. Going down spinal cord. In spinal cord, it is basically white matter, but there's also gray matter. The distribution of gray matter and white matter is different than in the brain or in the cerebrum. In the cerebrum, it's gray matter outside, white matter inside. In the spinal cord, it's backwards. It's white matter outside and gray matter inside of the spinal cord. In the spinal cord, we're going to study these areas, gray matter and white matter. Starting with the white matter, the white matter contains tracts. And we say tracts are bundles of axons, groups of axons running. And the gray matter has, it is located inside to the transverse section, as we see here, we can see the gray matter. The gray matter is arranged in a way like a letter H shape, having projections which are called horns. There is a dorsal horn or posterior horn and an anterior horn or ventral horn. And the white matter is described in terms of what we see in the picture called funiculus, posterior funiculus. There is a posterior funiculus. There's a lateral funiculus and an anterior funiculus. All of them are related in relation with the position of the gray matter, that those horns. The part of white matter between the midline and the dorsal horn is called posterior. The part between the dorsal horn and the ventral horn is called lateral. And the part between midline and anterior horn of the gray matter is called the anterior funiculus. And we see it here. In total, there are six funiculi or columns. If you think in terms of the spinal cord, like a long structure. You can describe this as six columns coming, going up and down. And now functionally we can describe these columns of funiculi in terms of ascending and descending tracts. The ascending tracts are afferent, meaning sensory, are bringing all the stimuli to the central nervous system, and descending carrying all the motor impulses, orders that come down uh, to connect to other neurons in the spinal cord.
the ascending tracks. The ascending tracks are distributed in the uh, different funicula, as you see in this diagram. But in general, they bring information, sensory information from receptors in the skin, muscles, joints, organs. Um, and also, decusation may happen here in the spinal cord or medulla oblongata. So when these cords, I mean these tracts, the transverse section of the spinal cord, we can see these are names that they give to this funiculus. It's called the fasciculus cuneatus and gracilis, all of them in the posterior funiculus. This is the spinal cerebellar, posterior, and anterior, spinal thalamic tract, and anterior spinal thalamic tract. These are what we call the um, sensory or ascending tracts. And if you see the names, you can tell where they come and go, where they originate and where they go. Spinal cerebellar, from the spinal cord to the cerebellum. Spinal thalamic, from the spinal cord to the thalamus. So it's clearly by the name, you can tell if it's ascending, it's coming from the spine to the thalamus. This is a description of how these pathways go in the, as part of the ascending tract. This is an example of what travels in the posterior funiculi or column. These tracts, ascending tracts, receive connections from receptors, fine touch, proprioception, vibra vibration, and they travel in the posterior column. We follow them, we see a connection in the medulla oblongata, there's a neuron connecting there. And then we see a decusation, a crossing over. It goes to the other side. It goes to the other side and it starts going up. And where it goes then? To the thalamus, where there's another connection with another neuron. And from the thalamus to the cerebral cortex, to the primary somatosensory area in the parietal lobe in the cerebral cortex. Now, another way to describe this is in terms of connections or number of neurons. That's what we see here. The first neuron, second neuron, and third neuron. The first neuron is a neuron located in the dorsal root ganglion of the spinal cord, which sends the axon that connects to the second neuron located in the medulla oblongata for this particular ascending tract. And the third neuron is a neuron that receives this connection and is located in the thalamus, which finally sends that information to the cerebral cortex. So there are three neurons involved in this ascending tract. And in the side, we can see another ascending tract, this 
is the spinothalamic tract, which the first neuron again, it, it is in the dorsal root ganglion. Then this connects to interneurons in the spinal cord, which will be the second neuron. And you see how it is going to the other side. It's crossing over, it's crossing to the contralateral side, and it's going to travel up through, through uh, two tracks, anterior spinothalamic and lateral spinothalamic. Going up, ascending, the third neuron, it is a neuron of the thalamus again. And from there to the cerebral cortex. First neuron, second neuron, and spinal cord, interneuron, and the third neuron in the thalamus. And these tracts are bringing all the sensations of the body, and this is the summary of all these tracts. Anterior spinothalamic, lateral spinothalamic, the fasciculus gracilis and cuneatus, which are the posterior funiculi. And there are two more here called spinocerebellar that go to the cerebellum. Now the descending tracts, the descending motor tracts are described in this table and the location of the spinal cord, the transverse section that we see here. Very similar to the ascending, we can tell where they go, where they originate, by the name. Corticospinal, lateral and anterior, from the cortex to the spinal cord. The rubrospinal, from the red nucleus, that's what the rubro means, red nucleus to the spinal cord. Tectospinal, from the roof of the midbrain, superior colliculus. Vestibular spinal, from the vestibular nucleus to the spine. Reticular spinal from the reticular formation of the medulla to the spinal cord. So that's how we can tell if it's ascending or descending. Just by the name we can tell uh, where they come and where they go. The first two in the list are what we call the pyramidal. And they come from the cerebral cortex. The lateral crossed. The anterior will not cross. So when these pyramidal tracts that are coming from the cerebral cortex and they are motor tracts, when they get to the spinal cord, some of them, some of these fibers, they cross and some others, they continue in the same side. The one that crosses is the lateral, the lateral pyramidal tract or corticospinal. And we can see them in this diagram here. Let's identify. This is a mixture of ascending and descending tracts. Blue are ascending and red are ascending. We can see the lateral corticospinal tract and the um, anterior or ventral corticospinal tract, which are one here and the other one right here. And then the other reds are smaller, reticular spinal, rubrospinal, vestibular spinal, the, one, the other ones from the list. What are those four? Those are called the extrapyramidal. We see in the table, the others are classified as extrapyramidal. Extrapyramidal because they, well, they are not the pyramid, 
but they have to do with coordination. They have to do with those orders coming from the cerebellum, from the midbrain, connections from the basal nucleus, substantia nigra, which coordinate the movement. So meaning they activate other neurons next to the main motor neurons in the spinal cord to facilitate uh, movements with some particular purpose or keep the equilibrium. And if we see the, just the pyramidal tracks here, we can see the first neuron is in the primary motor cortex of the cerebral cortex. And you see it coming down, and in the medulla oblongata is where the crossing over happens, at the level of the pyramids of the medulla oblongata. And here we have two tracts, descending tracts, the anterior, which continues in the same side, and the lateral that crosses to the contralateral side. And we can see the next neuron is the second neuron, which is in the spinal cord, ventral horn. Ventral horn of the spinal cord, gray matter, that's where the second neuron is. And from there, connection to the skeletal muscles. Now, what this diagram is, explains is, is practically an integration, a functional integration of all these tracks and how they, how they work to control the movements. This is a kind of complex diagram, but let's go through it in this way. Let's say an order comes from the cerebral cortex and it will go, it will go through the pyramidal tract here. You see these three connections. Some fibers may go straight to the lower motor neuron, the red arrow, go straight to the lower motor neuron. But some of the other fibers, they will connect to the basal nuclei and to the reticular formation of the brainstem. Now here's where the, all the interconnections happen. The basal nuclei, we said, remember, is the, are the neurons that control, regulate the movement, slow motion, coordination. Well, this basal nuclei will connect to the thalamus, to the red nucleus, and to the reticular formation. Now, this red nucleus, this red nucleus is receiving an input from the cerebellum. Cerebellum has other input here from sensory receptors of the joints, muscle tendons, and it will influence all this to the thalamus, to the red nucleus. And now, this red nucleus will send a track down to the lower motor neuron. The fibers from the reticular formation will also send tracks to the lower motor neurons. And the vestibular nucleus, which receives input from the cell bell, also to the lower motor neuron. So this neuron in the spinal cord is receiving some axons that come straight from the cerebral cortex, but some others from reticular spinal, rubro spinal, vestibular spinal which are going to control and regulate the fine adjustment of all these movements, uh, ordered finally by the lower motor neurons from the spinal cord. So this is how complex all this uh, diagram is and explains how we move a muscle. If we move a muscle, it's not so simple as one neuron here, the second neuron spinal cord, that's it. 
There's many other components. If you eliminate this from the equation, there won't be regulation. And you will be missing probably this arrow from the broken spinal tract or be modified. And so this movement also will not be so controlled. And we can see like shaking, we can see stereotype movement sometimes. Or if there's no input from the cerebellum, there's no input to the thalamus, red nucleus, no vestibular nucleus, input to this lower motor neuron, and we cannot keep the equilibrium while doing some movements. Then the last part of this uh, chapter is about the cranial and spinal nerves, peripheral nervous system, nerves that carry define nerves as groups or bundles of axons, which can be motor or sensory. Cranial nerves are all nerves that arise from brainstem or directly from the cerebrum. And spinal nerves, all the nerves that arise from the spinal cord. Both are part of the peripheral nervous system because they are not part of the central nervous central nervous system, the brain and spinal cord. Everything that comes out is peripheral nervous system. The cranial nerves, they arise from nuclei in the brain, cerebrum, brain stem. There are 12 pairs, left and right. And most of them carry mixed axons, and they are called mixed nerves because carry Axons from sensory neurons and motor neurons. Also, some axons will belong to the somatic division. Some axons will belong to the parasympathetic division, autonomic nervous system. Some of them are related with senses, like the vision, olfaction, hearing. And they have some special connection in a ganglia. In ganglia, groups, another group of neurons located near the organ, like near the eye, near the ear. And that's a list of cranial nerves that, if you did anatomy, probably studied this very well and had to memorize all of them and the location and the words, was the foramen where they go through and besides the function. But here, this is the function only for these cranial nerves. The olfactory nerve, very simple, it's just olfaction or smell. Optic nerve, second cranial nerve, vision. Third, fourth, and sixth have to do with eye movements. That's an easy way to remember the function of them. Three, four, and six, eye movements. The five, or trigeminal, is for sensation of the face and head, muscles for chewing. Facial nerve has to do with taste and also movement of muscles of the face. Vestibular cochlear, glossopharyngeal, or well, this vestibular cochlear here, there is a 
I'm mismatching the information. This is supposed to be for hearing and equilibrium. Glossopharyngeal participates partially in the taste. Vagus nerve, sensory motor autonomic functions. This is parasympathetic. <coughs> Spinal nerve, control movements or, or muscles of the head and neck. And hypoglossal control muscles of the tongue. That was a quick description of the cranial nerves, the function of all these cranial nerves. Special functions are associated, I mean, special senses are associated with the olfactory, the first cranial nerve, second, the optic, taste with facial and glossopharyngeal, vestibular cochlea for hearing. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, sometimes the lower eyelid switches involuntarily. Uh, that be something that has to do with those uh, muscles that are responsible for eye movement, or to be efficiency from something or a combination of both. What type of twitching you said? Like the left eye, this twitching that happens sometimes. And you mean the muscles of the face? Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, in the eyelids? The eyelids, yeah. Yeah. Well, there may be many things. Maybe uh, originating in the muscles, maybe overstimulation, and it has, and it's related with this eyelid, for instance, are innervated by that branch of the trigeminal nerve, the fifth cranial nerve. But there are also connections um, from the facial nerve to the muscle of the called orbicularis ocula here around the orbit, maybe one of those. But whenever we see movement like twitching in those muscles or any other muscle, we go with the components, maybe the muscle, maybe just an overstimulation at the muscular level, or maybe the nerve, and maybe unwanted discharges of the nerves. And even some, some partial seizures may be the origin of that. If uh, some people have uh, this type of uh, seizures, which are called partial, and if they are frequent and it happens all the time, they have to be uh, investigated. But most of the cases, most of the time, this muscular twitching that happens is because of muscular origin. Yeah, and it has to do with uh, fatigue, muscular fatigue, and it usually goes away. But if it gets too frequent and it gets accompanied by other symptoms, it may be a different thing. So the spinal nerves are all the nerves that arise from the spinal cord. And there are eight arising from the cervical segment of the spinal cord, 12 from the thoracic segment, five from the lumbar segment, five from the sacral segment, and one from the coccygeal segment. All these nerves are named according to the region of the spinal cord for where they arise. The cervical, we call them C1, C2, C3. That's what we call these spinal nerves. And uh, 
thoracic T1 to T12, lumbar L1 to L5, and so on in that way. And it's important to make this distinction because they will be combined afterwards. C1, C2, C3, they get combined and they get connected and it gives place to different types of networks called plexus. Now we mentioned that all these nerves, all these nerves are mixed. But they are mixed when they, after they arise from the spinal cord, they connect to each other and from there they turn into nerves. And those are the ones that are mixed. Here in this diagram, we see these nerves here, which contains two types of fibers, one blue, one red. But if we follow, we trace them back to the spinal cord, we see that all the reds are coming from this fiber, from this nerve, and all the blue are coming from this other one. And these are called roots. These are the first connections to the spinal cord. Dorsal root and ventral root are the ones that arise from the spinal cord. Then we follow them and we'll see that the, the blue roots, dorsal roots, the blue axons here, are coming from neurons located in this dilated part called a ganglion or dorsal root ganglion. Those neurons are sensory neurons, pseudo-unipolar neurons, which Sensory neurons or pseudo-unipolar neurons. And they are connected to receptors on the skin, for instance. So these are the ones that receive sensations. Sensations come in this way. <coughs> Connect to the sensory neuron of the dorsal root ganglion. And from here, enter the dorsal root through the dorsal root, connecting to the spinal cord gray matter to interneurons here in gray. Now the other root, which is called ventral root, it contains motor axons. The neurons, the body of these neurons are in the anterior horn of the spinal cord. You can see the axons coming out as part of the ventral root, all the red connections. And when they get here, they get together. They get together and from here they, they, they start traveling mixed. So here, after this connection, and this is what we call the spinal nerve. This is the part that we see coming out of the vertebrae. This part, dorsal root, ventral root, that happens inside the vertebral canal. So if we trace the bone here, the canal or the, the vertebrae will be all this, like a ring. And what we see outside coming out of the spinal cord is the spinal nerve. We see only one. But it is the connection of the two roots, dorsal and ventral root. And now from here, the spinal nerve will give many branches. Now each branch is called a ramus. There are two main, ventral and dorsal. And they contain mixed axons, sensory axons and motor axons. Now those nerves, the ramus, that we actually call the nerves finally, are nerves like the medial nerve, ulnar nerve, radial nerve, they all contain mixed axons, sensory and motor.
And this is something we did last time in the, in the lab, the reflex arc. And we did uh, some of these reflexes, like the patella reflex, or knee jerk reflex, the Achilles reflex. Um, what they show us is all these connections that we saw in the previous slide. And it's called reflex arc because it starts with a stimulus that will travel along all these parts and it will end up in a response. We define some parts of the reflex arc, five different components of the reflex arc seen here. First component is the receptor or sensory receptor, which may be in the skin. Sensory neuron, which is located in dorsal root ganglion and connects to the receptor. Association neuron or interneuron in the spinal cord, which is central nervous system. From there, it connects to the motor neuron in the anterior horn of the spinal cord. And the motor neuron sends the axon to the muscle, which is the effector, or maybe a gland, which responds. Here we have all the components of the reflex arc. Sensory receptor in the skin, in this case. Sensory neuron located in the dorsal root ganglion. Then interneuron here in the spinal cord that connects to the motor neuron, anterior horn of the spinal cord. And this neuron sends the axon that connects to the muscle. So those are the components of the reflex arc. One thing that we also showed and uh, we also saw in the, in the lab last time is this connection in black coming from the top. So this is an axon from cerebral cortex neuron. So actually this motor neuron receives input from this interneuron, but this interneuron is receiving signals from the skin, but also is receiving signals from your cerebral cortex. And that's how we can control the response involuntarily or voluntarily because there are fibers connecting these interneurons coming from the cerebral cortex. And that's how when you know that someone is testing your reflexes, you can change the reaction. You can make it stronger or weaker. And if we distract that with some maneuvers and we can release that uh, connection or inhibit that connection and we have a better, more accurate response. Questions, comments to this point? Okay, time to move to the next part which will be a description of another section of the nervous system called autonomic nervous system, which mediates involuntary functions or effectors. Autonomic nervous system contains neurons called autonomic neurons that will mediate uh, uh, functions that are not under voluntary control, meaning cardiac muscle, smooth muscle of the viscera, digestive system, blood vessels, 
glands. And we can establish some differences between neurons that are autonomic and neurons that are somatic. Somatic motor neurons and autonomic motor neurons, they have different effectors, they have different functions, and we can see some uh, differences, like the somatic motor neurons, their bodies are in the spinal cord, and there's only one neuron traveling from the spinal cord to the effector. As the example of the reflex arc, we saw a motor neuron in the spinal cord, and that neuron is connecting to the muscle. There's only one neuron there. But the autonomic motor system, or motor neuron, there are two. There are two neurons instead of one. I'm talking about motor neurons only. So the neurons that start to mediate the response, the move the muscles. And in the case of autonomic neurons, the first, the first neurons are in the brain or spinal cord. And the second neuron, it's in ganglia. Ganglia, remember, are groups of neurons located in the peripheral nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system has ganglia that will receive connections from these autonomic motor neurons. So somatic motor neurons, there's only one neuron. Autonomic motor neurons, there's a set of two before they connect to the effector. And since there are two neurons in the autonomic nervous system, and the motor uh, neurons, we call them preganglionic and postganglionic, depending on if they are before the ganglion or after the ganglion. Preganglionic, they have their origin in the midbrain or hindbrain spinal cord. And postganglionic, they originate in the ganglion. These ganglia belong to the autonomic nervous system. They are located in the head, neck, thorax, and abdomen. And we find them lateral to the spinal cord. On either side, right and left, we find this chain of ganglia running in uh, component of the autonomic nervous system. So this is a representation of the autonomic ganglion. And we have the preganglionic neuron and postganglionic neuron, a set of two neurons before they connect to the effector, which in this case is smooth muscle. So that's the anatomy of the nervous system, autonomic nervous system. 
Now let's see how it works. Neurotransmitters. There also we can see differences in the neurotransmitters. Like in the somatic motor neurons, release acetylcholine. And it's always excitatory. Autonomic neurons release mainly acetylcholine and norepinephrine. But they may be excitatory or inhibitory. So it's a little bit more complex. It's a little bit more complex, different than the somatic motor neurons. Somatic motor neurons is just acetylcholine. It's always excitatory. Autonomic neurons, we have two neurotransmitters, acetylcholine or epinephrine, but they may be or excitatory or inhibitory. And the autonomic nervous system has two divisions, sympathetic and parasympathetic. Sympathetic division, as we said, both will have preganglionic and postganglionic neurons. In the case of the sympathetic division, the preganglionic neurons originate from thoracic and lumbar regions of the spinal cord. That's why they are called, or it is called the thoracolumbar division, sympathetic or thoracolumbar, because the preganglionic neurons uh, uh, originate from the thoracic and lumbar regions of the spinal cord. Now these preganglionic neurons are going to synapse or connect to the uh, sympathetic ganglia where the postganglionic neuron is. And this ganglia, called sympathetic ganglia, are running parallel to the spinal cord on both sides, right and left. And they are called paravertebral ganglia. They are all connected forming a chain that we know, sympathetic chain of ganglia, sympathetic ganglia. And we have a diagram here for this sympathetic division. Thoracolumbar, thoracolumbar, we say everything in red is sympathetic. The preganglionic neuron originates from the thoracic and lumbar region of the spinal cord. And Postganglionic is located in all these ganglia interconnected called the chain of ganglia, sympathetic ganglia. That's what the postganglionic neuron is. And if we follow all the red connections, now after the ganglia, we see the fibers connecting to different organs like the heart, the bronchi, the stomach, digestive system, and all that. Now this is the picture that we see from the spinal cord and all this sympathetic chain of ganglia located in the thoracic and lumbar region. Some of these fibers, some of these axons are myelinated, some others are unmyelinated. Remember we made a difference, the myelinated axons, they carry the impulses much faster than the unmyelinated. 
First thing we see are myelinated axons of preganglionic neurons that exit the spinal cord via the ventral roots. And it will divide and it will divide into two small branches called white ramey communicants. And then connect to the autonomic ganglia at different points. Then, from the postganglionic, from the ganglia, postganglionic neurons containing amyelinated axons, we'll go through the gray rhema communicants. And we say gray because it's amyelinated, it doesn't look white. They don't have much myelin. And they come back to the, to the spinal nerve and they keep traveling with the spinal nerves to their effectors. Now this may sound a little complex, so let's see this diagram. Let's make a, a trace some lines here. From the spinal cord, we see the fibers coming out and connecting to this ganglia. That's where the second neuron is. And the second neuron will send the connection through the rhema communicants to the spinal nerve. So before, before getting to the spinal nerve, in the case of autonomic, sympathetic, there's a connection in the ganglia. And after the connection, the postganglionic neuron sends the axon that will travel in the spinal nerve. In the case of the somatic, it will just go straight from the spinal cord straight to the nerve. It won't make any stop in the ganglia. And why it's traveling in the spinal nerve? It's going to many places like sweat glands. It's going to a smooth muscle of um, the digestive system but how it reaches there through the nerves. And that's why it has to travel along with uh, a somatic nervous system, travel along with other axons. But the important thing is the autonomic neuron, they connect to a ganglion, which in the case of the sympathetic, it is in the sympathetic ganglion. Now, preganglionic neurons which are in the spinal cord, they branch and synapse to ganglia. But those connections may happen at different levels. May connect to the ganglia at the same level, may connect to the ganglia upward, above, or below. And we describe divergence in that sense, meaning one preganglionic synapses with postganglionic neurons at different levels. It diverges. And also there is convergence, like many preganglionic from different levels of the spinal cord may get together and connect to one postganglionic neuron. So this divergence and convergence allows the sympathetic division to work as a single unit and have mass activation. How we understand this, for instance, 
if the final action will be contraction of the smooth muscle of the digestive system, small intestine, large intestine, well, this convergence and divergence will allow that one level of the spinal cord activates and at the same time they are activating many levels of ganglia and therefore connecting to smooth muscle from the small intestine, the three parts of the small intestine, duodenum, jejunum, ileum, and even the large intestine, all at once. That's what we call mass activation. It's not like the muscle that we want to uh, move our fingers and we just move the muscles, flexors, extensors of the forearm. With the case of smooth muscle digestive system, there's a mass activation. All the digestive muscle or smooth muscle digestive system is activated thanks to this different level connection. So for, for the smooth muscle, are you Convergence? Convergence no. No, and, and, and divergence, both happen, yeah. That creates like a network working at different levels and promoting mass activation in some cases. And that's what we see here. If we trace this, we have the motor neuron and the spinal cord. And if we follow that red axon, it will come out through the ventral root and then connect to the ganglia through the white ramus. But then it travels all the way down to the ganglia one level below. And it connects here to the postganglionic and it continues traveling. Some of them will connect to ganglia the le uh, above level. And that's why we see divergence in that sense. Now we have seen the chain sympathetic ganglia right next to the spinal cord in both sides. But there are other ganglia called collateral ganglia. And they are located around the digestive system mostly, like celiac, superior mesenteric, inferior mesenteric. Um, and these postganglionic neurons will take care of digestive system, urinary system, reproductive system. And this is what is represented in this previous slide right here, collateral ganglion, like the celiac ganglion. And one of the connections here, this axon that is coming from the spinal cord goes, is bypassing the sympathetic chain because it's going to the collateral ganglion. And that's where the postganglionic neuron is. But in either case, does the structure is the same. Our all autonomic nervous uh, neurons are going to have two a set of two neurons before they connect to the effector. And where's the postganglionic? Maybe in the sympathetic chain or maybe in collateral ganglion, which are uh, close to the digestive system. And those nerves that carry axons to the digestive system and are found in the abdominal cavity are called splagnic nerves.
Uh, we can see them here, like the anatomy of all these collateral ganglia. They are in the abdominal cavities, cilia ganglion, superior mesenteric ganglion, all around the abdominal aorta, centrally located. And all the intestines have been removed from this diagram. We see just the kidneys. Uh, but all of these organs are receiving connections from these uh, collateral ganglia. And we have to mention adrenal glands here because adrenal glands, which are part of the endocrine system, um, they have two components, the medulla and the cortex. The medulla secretes epinephrine and norepinephrine, which are two neurotransmitters, but they are also considered hormones. The thing is that the adrenal medulla, it is stimulated by the sympathetic nervous system because embryologically, going back into the development of these organs, the adrenal medulla is actually a ganglion which has been modified. So now all these cells that were connected, or neurons actually, postganglionic neurons that were connected to preganglionic neurons, and they differentiate into a separate organ called the adrenal medulla, a component of the adrenal gland. But they still retain, they keep their connection to preganglionic neurons, sympathetic neurons. That's why when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, some connections will get to the adrenal medulla and these cells will secrete epinephrine, norepinephrine, to the bloodstream straight. So from there, there's no connection to an uh, effector organ. They just release those epinephrine and norepinephrine to the bloodstream, and they mediate this generalized response uh, promoted by the adrenal medulla. Whenever there's a sympathetic response, there is a secretion of epinephrine and norepinephrine to the bloodstream, and they will stimulate everything all over the body. It's like a mass activation everywhere. Parasympathetic, parasympathetic division. It's a little bit different because the preganglionic neurons, they arise from the brain or from the sacral region of the spinal cord. Here we can see them in everything, all the fibers that are blue. We see the preganglionic neurons, midbrain, medulla. And the other group of blue neurons is very low here in the sacral region. That's a reason why it's called craniosacral division. But they also have a ganglia, a ganglion, because it's autonomic. There must be a set of two neurons. And where's the second neuron? In a ganglion that is called, uh, uh, usually it's called, well, it's a terminal ganglia. terminal ganglia because they are located very close to the effector. In most of the cases in the wall of the intestines, that's why they call terminal, very, very close to the effector, in this case the muscle, smooth muscle of the digestive system. 
And therefore, since they are very close to the effector, the posenglionic neuron has a very short axon. And if we take a look at the diagram and just make it bigger, of the sacral level, for instance, we can see the preganglionic neuron, then the posganglionic, let's say at the kidney, it's located here. That's where the connection happens, in the urinary bladder, in the testicle. The posganglionic neuron is right very close to the effector. That's another difference with the sympathetic nervous system. In sympathetic, all the ganglia, I mean the posganglionic, are in the ganglia. They are close to the spinal cord or terminal ganglia, I mean, or uh, collateral ganglia. But in the case of parasympathetic, the posganglionic is very close to the organ. But in any case, it's two neurons, a set of two neurons. In the cranial part, the parasympathetic travels with some of the cranial nerves. And those cranial nerves are the third cranial nerve, seventh, ninth, and tenth. The tenth cranial nerve is called the vagus, and there's a long nerve that gets out of the cranial division goes all the way down, and it connects to all viscera, like thoracic, abdominal. But here the third cranial nerve is the one that controls the pupils, the pupil response. The seventh cranial nerve controls glands, like lacrimal glands, um, nasal and palatal mucous glands, submandibular salivary glands, Nine cranial nerve, parotid gland, salivary glands, which are glands that respond to stimulation of this parasympathetic division. And that's just another diagram that makes both sympathetic and parasympathetic division. Everything in red is sympathetic, and everything in blue is. Uh, parasympathetic, you can see the difference, thoracolumbar and uh, craniosacral division and how the ganglia are different type for sympathetic, the chain, the sympathetic chain plus the collateral ganglia. And in the case of the parasympathetic, the posenglionic are in terminal ganglia, very close to the organ. Now, after describing all this functional anatomy, uh, let's discuss the functions of the autonomic nervous system. In general, the functions are sympathetic is part of the fight or flight response. Norepinephrine is released to the bloodstream, postganglionic neurons from the adrenal medulla and it's supposed to prepare the body for activity, for physical activity, increasing the heart rate, promoting increased levels of blood glucose so the skeletal muscles can have more energy, regulation of the heart, blood vessels, 
to allow the organs to get more blood there for more oxygen, more nutrients. Everything is about activation, promoting more activity and increasing the metabolism. And parasympathetic is all the opposite. Allows the body to relax from that high activity. Both are working all the time, balancing each other. Parasympathetic slows down the heart rate, increases the activity of the digestive system. In general, this is remembered as a rest and digest part of the autonomic nervous system. And the differences are based on the type of neurotransmitters we'll see and the type of receptors that cells uh, that the cells have. Acetylcholine, here's where the neurotransmitter uh, uh, plays a difference, or plays a role in the difference. Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that is used by all preganglionic neurons from both divisions, sympathetic and parasympathetic. So in all preganglionic neurons, they release acetylcholine. And at the same time, this is a neurotransmitter releasing from most parasympathetic postganglionic. Some sympathetic postganglionic, like the ones innervating sweat glands and skeletal muscle blood vessels, they release acetylcholine. Whenever we find acetylcholine, we call those synapses cholinergic, cholinergic synapses. And adrenergic is the word for the synapses where we find um, norepinephrine. Where exactly? Well, that's a neurotransmitter released by most sympathetic postganglionic. Now we see that better in a diagram as we have here. In red, sympathetic, thoracolumbar, and we can see the ganglion, paravertebral, collateral ganglion, and we can see acetylcholine as a neurotransmitter. Then we said all preganglionic neurons, either sympathetic or parasympathetic, they release acetylcholine. So let's see the parasympathetic, craniosacral, here, acetylcholine, and here, acetylcholine. Now, where we see epinephrine, where epinephrine, I mean, norepinephrine, norepinephrine are in most postganglionic sympathetic, so all the red, norepinephrine, norepinephrine. And what about parasympathetic, acetylcholine? That makes a difference in the action, in the type of effect that they produce in the different organs.
No, remember we studied the synapses or the synapse in uh, previous chapters, how they connect, uh, the neurons connect to each other and the neurons to muscle. But we studied those for the somatic division. In the autonomic division, sympathetic and parasympathetic, these neurotransmitters and the synapses are different. Here, the synapses will happen in this way. The sympathetic neuron and parasympathetic, as we see here in this diagram, they send the axons in between the smooth muscle cells. And they have small dilated parts, the axons, that will get close to the muscle. And we see them here releasing acetylcholine in one side, the parasympathetic, and norepinephrine in the other side the sympathetic. So they will trigger different receptors, adrenergic and cholinergic, and we see using those names, adrenergic receptors, they receive norepinephrine, and cholinergic receptors, they receive acetylcholine. And that's how one smooth muscle fiber is regulated by both sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. Now, how do cells respond to sympathetic nervous system, which releases epinephrine and norepinephrine? Adrenergic stimulation by the norepinephrine or epinephrine, which is made by the adrenal medulla, they will act on the different target cells. And the target cells are the organs they must have receptors for norepinephrine and epinephrine. Now, the receptors, the type of receptor, the type of receptor will determine if the action will be a stimulation or inhibition at a particular organ. Sympathetic, adrenergic stimulation in the heart is increase the activity, increase the heart rate. The muscles of the iris and the pupil is dilation. Smooth muscle of the blood vessels, they contract. But in other organs like the bronchioles, the sympathetic mediates inhibition. The bronchioles they have a diameter in the lung. That's how we breathe and the air gets into our lungs. The sympathetic promotes dilation of the bronchioles. So we can get more air. It makes sense. We need more oxygen. We need more air. The bronchioles are supposed to have larger diameters. And that's why the bronchioles will respond in that way. The smooth muscle dilates. It won't constrict. So at that point, it's inhibitory. Same norepinephrine. The difference is the type of receptor, and that's what makes the different uh, response. So these receptors, in the case of the sympathetic, are called adrenergic receptors, and they are of two types, alpha and beta receptors. And to make the thing more complicated, there are two different types of alpha and two different types of beta receptors. 
All of them use G-protein second messenger. That was mentioned when we give an example of uh, G-proteins. And um, the alpha receptors are more sensitive to norepinephrine. Beta receptors are more sensitive to epinephrine. But even the response may be different if it's beta-1 or beta-2 or alpha-1 and alpha-2 in different organs. This is not something that we can memorize, and I will not be so detailed in the questions for the exam about what organ has alpha-1, alpha-2, and in that way. But it, what is important is to remember the different response that different organs may have because of different receptors. Uh, this table is just an example of that. In the heart, for instance, sympathetic nervous system mediates increase in the heart rate and increases the strength of contraction by beta-1 receptors mainly. The lungs, the bronchioles dilate, meaning the smooth muscle, mediated by beta-2 receptors. So the action is, we may think, well, the sympathetic increases will constrict the, the smooth muscle of the bronchioles. No, it's backwards. It's dilation of the smooth muscle of the bronchioles. And that's because of the different receptors, beta-2. And in that way, some other organs have more complex response, like the liver cells. They have alpha-1 and beta-2 receptors, and they have different actions in terms of metabolism of glucose glycogenolysis, secretion of glucose, um, because of the different types of receptors that, that so they have. Question. Yeah. Can you just um, so which ones have are excitatory and inhibitory then? Uh, is it the beta? Meaning that which ones will have an increase? In general, we can say that the beta-1 is a stimulatory and the beta-2 is inhibitory. But it depends, I said in general, because we have to see a specific action in each organ. Uh, for instance, in the, in the heart, the beta-1 promotes increased activity, mm -hmm. more contraction of the cardiac muscle, increases strength of contraction. But in the bronchioles, the beta-2 receptors, since are different, they mediate dilation, relaxation of the smooth muscle. But if we integrate both, it makes sense because sympathetic suppose is supposed to have more blood, the heart has to contract faster, stronger. At the same time, you need more oxygen, so you need open airways. The bronchial has to dilate. That's the reason why they have their different receptors. And we take this knowledge as a good thing because we are able to mimic effects of sympathetic and parasympathetic using drugs that may stimulate or inhibit different types of receptors. These are some examples. Phenylephrine, phenylephrine. It's a vasoconstrictor, nasal, nasal decongestant. This is very used as, uh, for allergies because it's going to 
stimulate alpha-1 receptors, which are adrenergic receptors, and they mediate constriction of the blood vessels, smooth muscle. And there's a congestion because all these blood vessels are dilated, congested. And this drug is going to mimic that. It's going to stimulate receptors, alpha-1, to constrict the blood vessels at that level. Cholinergic stimulation, cholinergic stimulation, or cholinergic synapses are mediated by acetylcholine, which we have said is a release from preganglionic neurons of both sympathetic and parasympathetic, and is a stimulatory. But in postganglionic, acetylcholine, it is found in parasympathetic cells, and it's usually stimulatory, but sometimes may be inhibitory. Why? Again, because of the same reason, the type of receptors. But again, emphasizing not to confuse, in general, we say always sympathetic and parasympathetic effects as divisions, big divisions, they are opposite. But at a specific level of some organs, the action may be very variable. And those receptors for acetylcholine may be of two types, or cholinergic or nicotinic or muscarinic. Nicotinic are found in the ganglia. So they are stimulated by acetylcholine from preganglionic. They are ligand-gated ion channels, so the same type. At the same time, they receive the acetylcholine and they work as channel. And muscarinic, which are found in the visceral organs, and they are stimulated by acetylcholine from postganglionic neurons. Now, muscarinic receptors are even more complex. There are up to five different types of muscarinic receptors from M1 to M5. And they can be a stimulatory or inhibitory, depending on what channel open, the potassium, calcium. But all of them use G proteins and messenger, and second messenger system. This is how they work at the molecular level, nicotinic receptors. They are actually the same channels. What you see, the acetylcholine binding and the channel will open. But the muscarinic are more complex, or some of them may be uh, mediated by G proteins, where you see the acetylcholine binding to this receptor, and the G proteins will uh, make the potassium leave or stimulate channels of potassium, promoting hyperpolarization, and that's the way they are inhibitory. Or they can stimulate channels of sodium or calcium, and in that way make the response excitatory. The muscarinic, that's why we have different types from M1 to M5, depending on the type of mechanism, making them stimulatory or inhibitory. But the nicotinic are always stimulatory.
So this is another way of putting all these activity of the neurons, preganglionic, postganglionic. Here we label the ganglia where we find the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors and uh, the different type of neurotransmitters that we find, acetylcholine and the postganglionic parasympathetic and norepinephrine and the postganglionic sympathetic, the type of receptors that they can stimulate, muscarinic, parasympathetic and adrenergic for the sympathetic and the different actions that may have in different organs. Now, talking more about the organs in general, we say the sympathetic and parasympathetic are opposite to each other, they're antagonistic. Now, most of the organs are in that way. They receive innervation from both systems. And that's what really makes it work in a balanced way. Uh, like in the heart, sympathetic increases the heart rate, parasympathetic decreases the heart rate. In digestive fu uh, function, sympathetic decreases the activity, parasympathetic increases the activity. Or in the pupil, diameter, sympathetic dilation, parasympathetic constriction of the pupil. But in some cases, we see this. Complementary effects. Both divisions producing the similar effects on the same target, like salivary gland. In salivary glands, the parasympathetic division stimulates the secretion of saliva. Sympathetic constrict the blood vessels, so that secretion becomes thicker but they, go, they both go in the same direction to secretion of, sal of saliva. It's just the parasympathetic stimulates and makes the watery saliva. When sympathetic works, the saliva still is secreted, but it is thicker, it's a viscous uh, secretion. Or we may see cooperative effects. Both work towards the same action, final action. And we see this in the sexual function, like in erection and ejaculation. All the mechanisms that lead to erection are promoted by parasympathetic. Vasodilation of the organs, erection of the penis. But then, as part of the sexual response, the next stage is ejaculation. And that is mediated by the sympathetic nervous system that promotes contraction of the muscles around the seminal vesicles, around the muscles of the base of the penis, prostate gland. So we see both of them working towards the same action, but in different stages, but in general to the same, uh, the same action. And the third case is that some organs receive innervation from only one of them, not both systems. Like adrenal medulla, we see that, they receive only sympathetic. They don't receive parasympathetic. Erectopili muscles of the skin, the ones that move the villi, 
sweat glands of the skin. All of them are innervated by sweat glands, I mean, for sympathetic only. Blood vessels, they're only innervated by sympathetic. When they dilate, if the sympathetic is blocked or inhibited, and the blood vessel dilates. And all these are not working independently. They're always, they always have a central control, a central place in the nervous system where this is mainly regulated. Higher brain centers. And those places are located in the brainstem, different areas, like the medulla oblongata. We find neurons that control cardiovascular function, pulmonary function in terms of respiration, urinary, reproductive, digestive functions. Hypothalamus is also involved in this. as the major regulatory center. Everything gets here, and everything is directed by most of these main actions or main functions to control body temperature, hunger, thirst, uh, connections with the pituitary gland. Limbic system is also related to this. That's why in emotions, sympathetic nervous system is activated. Cerebellum, it is connected sometimes there are reactions that start from organs or viscera, and they make, uh, make us have symptoms like motion sickness, nausea, cardiovascular changes because of pain. One of the things that we see in um, patients under anesthesia, like someone in the middle of a surgery, where they're supposed not to feel any pain, and actually they, they don't feel pain. But the sensations are coming. I mean, you're cutting the skin. You're stimulating receptors. And sensory receptors go to the autonomic nervous system. And sometimes when, the, when we see the blood pressure going higher and the heart rate going higher, the patient is not complaining. It's unconscious. But those are autonomic reactions stimulated by pain. And we can tell, and anesthesiologists say, well, Anesthesia is not working good now. Let's increase the dosages. The patient is not complaining. is not awake. But you can see autonomic reactions because of that. And um, uh, that's why the, 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 the uh, cerebellum or medulla oblongata, where the cardiovascular centers are, are receiving all this input and reacting with uh, uh, stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system. And there are reflexes also in the autonomic nervous system. Loops. But they mediate more complex functions, like in the lungs there are stretch receptors. Like when we breathe in, there's a point at which we feel our lungs are stretched and overstretched. And we cannot keep, we cannot be breathing in more. There's a limit. And that, those are stretch receptors that tell you all your lungs are, are inflated now, and now what comes after is exhalation. Chemoreceptors and baroreceptors in the aorta that detect levels of carbon dioxide, oxygen. In the heart, there are stretch receptors, or in the digestive system also. 
the way that the esophagus starts working is when we swallow some piece of food and that dilates the esophagus and the reflex is contraction. And the contraction of the smooth muscle starts all over along the uh, digestive tube. Okay, questions, comments?